I had a meeting with a friend of mine, Steve Faring, who is the mogul coach for the Japanese uh, mogul team. And he said, you know, I think the ski industry is ready for some new energy. And why don't you guys come up with a design for a ski that can do the stuff that you guys are starting to do? It's super cool. And I was like, yeah, well, yeah, let's, let's do it. are the characteristics behind many different brands. Some of them are outgoing and energetic, some are a little bit more laid back. So in this podcast, we look to explore all the different characteristics, not only of the brand itself, its roots, its origins, but the people behind the brand. And is there a bit of a relationship between the characters of the people and the characters of the brand? This episode is brought to you by Winter Insight. From product reviews to resort reviews and all of your winter sport news. For brands, consumers, and retailers around the globe, it's your source for everything winter. Visit them at winterinsights.com. Well, good afternoon, good morning, and welcome wherever you are. And welcome to this episode of Legends of the Brand. And I'm really, really, really excited to share with you today our guest, who is none other than Mike Douglas. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Phil. No worries. Well, listen, we were obviously chatting just beforehand. And, uh, you know, through the power of the internet and uh, all those exciting things, you're on the other side of the world. So perhaps you can let our guests in, in let, let the audience in, in terms of uh, whereabouts you are based right now and uh, where you're tuning in from. Yeah, I, I live in Whistler, BC, west coast of Canada, and I am tuning in from my office, which is in my house, about two minutes away from the Creekside Gondola on Whistler Mountain. <laughs> oh, it's, and um, so in, in the mornings, then, is, is Creekside your main uplift, or do you head into the village, or do you just do you, you wait for the crowds to go and, and head up later on? Or You know, I, it really depends on the conditions. This year, I've actually been skiing Blackcomb a lot more, so it's often a drive across to the village and, and parking over there. But, you know, if the conditions are good on Whistler Mountain and the snow's good all the way down the mountain, then, yeah, for sure, Creekside is is the quick hit and, and the one that I go to. It's been warm over here this year, so... The best skiing's been been higher, and I, I think Blackcomb services a little bit more uh, high alpine terrain, so I've been drifting that way more. And then, you know, in terms of my daily routine of getting up there, um, once again, conditions. If it's a if it's a powder day and it looks amazing, I'll often get out there first thing and be be you know one of the first, not the first people in the lineup. Those people are there usually an hour ahead, but I'll be in the first wave. We'll say. Nice. And then, uh, but often I, I try to get some work done in the morning and then I'll head out in the afternoon and, and I like to just go out and, and do a ski tour, whatever, get up high on one of the mountains and put the skins on and go for a walk, ski, ski some powder in the trees or whatever, and, and then come back and back into the office. So that's good. That's great. I guess the lovely thing is being able to have access uh, to something like that. So pretty much on your doorstep. Uh, you can not say pick and choose because I guess you probably could become a fair weather skier, but I guess the nice thing is you have the, the opportunity to to look at different things. So that's that's quite good. Um, so for those people who, I mean, most people probably know of you, know know generally of your story, but perhaps you can just give us a bit of a a quick synopsis in terms of where you where you grew up and uh, perhaps where you're born. 
Yeah, so I was actually born in the middle of Canada in Saskatchewan, which is the flattest place in the whole country. Uh, but fortunately, my parents moved us out of there when I was very young, and I was raised on Vancouver Island. And it was, I didn't start skiing till I was 10 years old, but a school trip up to Mount Washington, the the, the main ski area on the island was was enough to get me hooked. And from that point on, all I wanted to do was ski and um, that eventually led me to Whistler just for a season, taking a year off of university. And I expected to sort of get it out of my system. And that didn't happen. And I ended up staying. And, uh, and <laughs> that was now 34 years ago. Wow. Uh, that's uh, yes, that, that, isn't that that's probably the, the wouldn't say the, the the traditional story. I'm only going to go for one season, mom, dad. It's fine. Yes, I'll go back to university. It'll be okay. <laughs> um, what is it do you think that clicked with you with skiing in terms of of, of a sport? Because I imagine you played lots of other things. I mean, what was it that kind of just drew you to it compared to everything else? Well, I it, it, I guess first it, it was the feeling. It was this feeling of gliding and and almost like flying without leaving the ground. And, and you know, you can get a little bit of that on a bicycle. You can jump and all these things. But it, it came so easy on skis. And and um, and then you add to it the soft snow. You know, you, you can push yourself and you can fly off that edge. And if there's powder snow down there, even if you screw up, it's not going to hurt. So that was the first thing. And I think the second thing was the adventure and and going down a ski trail i remember i remember the first time i went down one of the big trails in mount washington when i was a kid and it had this long slow curve and you couldn't see what was down there and i was excited and scared at the same time because i didn't know what was around the corner would i be able to handle it was you know what was going to be over there and that sort of sense of adventure really drew me in and and you know there was always something new over that ridge around the corner behind that peak and uh you know from from an early age i was adventuring and poking around and moving into the back country and wanting to travel to different resorts and and that's still a lot of what drives me today i, I love to to go to new places and 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 just see what's over the hill <laughs> kind of nice you know even though you obviously you're based in whistling you spend a lot of time I'd agree with you. There's there's that sense of um of excitement, isn't there, when you go to a new resort and you don't really know what's around the corner. Um, it's just it's kind of nice to just kind of go, I'd say, quote unquote, get lost uh, in the resort and just kind of uh, you know find your own trail. Um, speaking of finding your own trails, then if you were to have a fantasy day where you could you know have any sort of snow conditions, any sort of locations, what would your fantasy day of skiing look like? Hmm. I mean, it, it, it depends. Like, uh, I, I would say there's two, there's two versions. One could be, uh, in a place like Alaska where it's bluebird stable, you're skiing these steep spines and just, it's, I mean, it's the ultimate it's everybody talks about, Oh, Alaska, this Alaska, that I get a little bit tired of it myself. But when you hit a magic day in a place like that, it is something special. So it could be something like that. It could be a deep powder day where you're just struggling to breathe because it's blowing over your head and you're skiing down through, through trees. And, but, but for me, I guess if, if it had to be ultimate, ultimate, and I've had some really good ones over the years, all the those things would have to come together but in a place that's culturally unique and 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 is just like this 
whole experience. Um, and, and, you know, one place that comes to mind is, is Kashmir oh, really? uh, in the okay. Himalayas and, and skiing there. We, we did have this incredible powder skiing. We did have uh, some great big mountain skiing on a sunny day, but we also, you know, you'd come down and I remember we did this backcountry run off the, off the summit and it put us down into this, um, this small village that's only accessible by foot. Uh, there's no roads into this village. And and we came into the village and the kids all came out of the houses and uh, and wanted to come over and, and chat with us. And we brought them some candy. We knew we were going there and we brought them some candy and gave them rides on the back of our skis. And then we we moved a little bit down below the village and had a a traditional Kashmiri meal in a in a restaurant and and with the you know the 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 call to prayer being booming over the loudspeakers in the in the in the distance and it was just you know when you when you can combine all these elements that's that's kind of ultimate for me oh that's awesome i love that i love the idea of do you think uh, had this um this little village had they seen skiers before if you know what i mean it, it was it a known route that people yeah like, it was it was a known route that that um that comes out of a backcountry zone off gulmarg and um and so yeah i mean it's it's reasonably common for skiers to come through there several times a week i would say so it wasn't it wasn't totally unique but mm. but for us it was something uh pretty special for sure <laughs> that's amazing i love that um obviously you know, for for spending spending time in the mountains has uh, obviously impacted you and impacted uh, you know your life, your life in general. But um, I'm curious as well. So, if you were to describe to somebody um, the impact the mountains can have on their life, how would you explain that? What would you say to that? I mean, I it's maybe not so specific to the mountains, but, but the outdoors and the wild spaces, they are so there, there's an energy, uh, a feeling that comes from, from moving yourself in the outdoors. And for me, it's the mountains. I live, I live at the mountains. I think you can get a similar thing by being near the sea or, or in a forest or wherever, but to get out and get away from the clutter of modern day life and, just be out there and listening to, um, you know, the birds calling or the wind blowing through the trees and, and feeling the elements, feeling the snowflakes hitting your face. Um, it, 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 there's a, it's, it's transformative. And I think for a lot of people, and I, I know that I need that in my life. And, um, you know, as we were all going through COVID, the whole world was, was suffering through that. Fortunately, for me, I live right on the edge of the forest. And even though we were sort of in lockdown every day, I could go out and for an hour, I would go walk through the forest behind my house, either with my skis on, you know, when at the beginning I was ski touring up each day. And then later I was either walking or riding my bike. And that just became such an important thing in my life. And, 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 and it's something that, that fortunately I recognize. And I know that, you know, several times a week, if not every day, I need to get out there and I need mm -hmm. to just move and, and be out there. And it, it, for my mental health, it's, it's incredible. Oh, that's cool. I, I love that. Um, if we were to, to uh, rewind a little bit and we perhaps take a look at the beginning of your, not ski career, but obviously you had a, a you know, your um, kind of cut your teeth as it, as it were in, in the world of, of moguls. And, um, but, and, and obviously, 
I'm curious to find out what drew you to moguls versus perhaps a more, uh, dare I say, traditional um, ski activity of racing. Um, what drew you to, to bumps compared to everything else? Well, I, th I think I've always been a little bit of a freestyler. When I was growing up skiing, I never competed. Um, in fact, I did my first competition at 19 years old, which is <laughs> is bizarre when you think of, of the skiers that have sort of made their way into the pro ranks over the years. Um, I But I just loved skiing and every element of it. I loved jumping off things. I loved skiing moguls. I loved going fast down groomed runs. I loved uh, skiing powder. And, and when I went to Whistler for the season, I, I, I made a promise to myself that I was going to maximize every day that I was in Whistler. Keep in mind, I, I thought I was only going to be there for six months. So I said, I'm going to enter all of the local ski races. I'm going to try to do a mogul competition. I am going to call up the, the local photographer and see if he wants to go shoot some powder photos. I'm going to you know, I don't think there was a film company in town at that time, but eventually later in the season, Warren Miller came into town and I went up to the director and I said, Hey, <laughs> if you're looking for someone, I'm here, <laughs> you know? So, um, when I, when I was doing the competitions, um, I, I did reasonably well in all of them, actually both racing and moguls, but I really liked the people that I was skiing bumps with. They were like the best skiers I'd ever seen in my life. They were super nice and friendly and helpful. And, you know, when I started seeing results um, in my first two or three mogul competitions, I, I that was definitely that the thing that drew me in the hardest. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love the fact that, you know, there's a, um, obviously you talk about the people in there and it seems like uh, from, from doing a bit of reading as well, that obviously community and, and everything like that is obviously a big thing in, in you know, uh, throughout your life. And uh, do you think that, you know, that camaraderie, is that kind of where it was maybe cemented, uh, you know, working and training and, and skiing with these, uh, with your teammates in the mogul competitions? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's it's something that I massively underestimated when I when I moved to Whistler is I came here for the mountains, for the snow, for the terrain, you know, so that I could ski every day. What I didn't understand was that when I arrived here, I felt like I found my people. I felt like I was surrounded by people who who were like me, who had the same interests, who just wanted to get out there. And and keep in mind, I, I didn't come from a ski town, so I'd never been around people like that before. And mm. and that drew me in. And, and I would say that the people that live in this community are the reason I'm still here 34 years later. <laughs> well, hopefully at some point, we'll, well, I mean, at, uh, in terms of, of living in Whistler, uh, one of the things I was, I was curious to find out is, uh, is there a community tradition that you you love the most about the about the town uh, or is there something that happens there that is is a, your greatest connection to the area yeah that's interesting i not i mean i know what you mean in europe there's a lot of like things that the community does on an annual basis that brings everybody out and whatever i i mean we used to have the the world ski and snowboard festival and that was kind of like a highlight of the year that brought the tribe together will say people came out of the woodwork to attend the events and and um we, you know the best in the world and all these different genres and disciplines would be in town while that's kind of faded away i mean i think if i if i generalize 
this is a community filled with dreamers, filled with people who say like, why not instead of why? Like, let's do it. Let's let's go for it. Let's try this. Let's let's push the limits. And that's always inspiring to me. Um, and it comes from a lot of different fronts. It can be built around sport or the arts or even the environment. I mean, um, lately I've been working um, with with the the people that run the town, with the mayor and and some of the town council on environmental initiatives and. It's an inspiring group. I mean, it's a it's a tough topic, but but when we get together, there's a little ball of energy, and I I, I definitely feed off of that. Oh, I love that. So, I mean, I think it's I say community is such an important thing, and you know, there's a uh, you know, there's that common thread, isn't it, of of skiers and skiing that you could perhaps uh, even if you don't live physically in an area, the the theme of being a skier you can still connect with somebody who perhaps is a, a doctor or a lawyer, that sort of thing. That's your common thread of, of being able to enjoy a sport similarly. Um, on, on the theme of doctors and lawyers, was there, uh, obviously you've uh, now very successful in it with Switchback Entertainment, but was there ever a plan B for you in terms of if you ever went back to college or back to university in terms of not necessarily being in skiing, but to head off and do something else? Well, for sure. I mean, when I came to Whistler, I had done one year of university. I had all intentions of going back and finishing a degree. I didn't exactly know what that degree would be in, but I, I was, I grew up blue collar family, you know, um, I would, I would have been, um, you know, my dad didn't go to university. My mother did, but, but it was like, that was a big goal at that time was to get you know, my parents wanted to get their kids through university and give them a chance at making a, a good life and, and all these things. And so I'm I, I'm not sure what my parents thought in the beginning when I told them that I wasn't going to go back to university. I'm sure there was a bit of disappointment there, but I also followed that very quickly with I just made the Canadian national team for moguls. And I yeah, that kind of balances out, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think that helped them realize that I wasn't just going to be a a pot smoking ski bum that was uh, lounging around and and started doing doing nothing. Um, but but I've always um, I've always felt that that the the position I'm in within the ski world and in this community was was fragile i i've never felt um completely secure and and what i mean is that you know being paid to be a professional skier or work you know a job that's unconventional to me i always felt like it could go away at any time and i've never taken it for granted and so i've always sort of had a, a hand over here like kind of dipping into the real world and in some level. And and if I go through my whole career, I was never completely detached from what I'll call the real world. I always had a side hustle that was, that was somewhat normal and, um, and, and kind of as a backup plan a little bit, but um, oddly enough, it's, it's this, this whole pro ski thing and, and, has worked way better and way longer than I ever imagined it could have. Well, I'd say that's a that's probably quite a good thing, really, isn't it? And I guess the the other thing is when you're involved in this in, in any sort of industry that's um or any sort of activity that's physically based, 
you know, it, if you if your income is is completely based on your your physical ability, if you're injured or if there's a, an accident that sort of thing, then potentially you, you know your income could be. So having a um, side hustle works works to everybody's advantage, I guess, in that particular case. Um, I was I was curious that as well when I was doing some reading that um, uh, about a story that you wrote, uh, Greg Stump a letter. And uh, I quite like this because you obviously you mentioned along the lines of well, you put yourself out there and, uh, you know, you took a bit of a risk for yourself out there. And I wonder if you might be able to speak to that, because what was interesting about it is then uh, obviously many years later when um, uh, was it, when Sam uh, wrote wrote to you, wasn't it? Um, you kind of there's a bit of a parallel there. Or I was wondering if you could speak to that when you wrote to Greg. Yeah. So, I mean, as a, you know. 15, 16 year old, I, I was thinking about skiing all the time. And uh, Greg Stump was sort of the hot new filmmaker at the time. And his athletes, Scott Schmidt and Glenn Flake and Mike Hatrip were my heroes. And, uh, you know, I was, I was a dreamer and I was a shy kid as well. I, I was not the kind of kid that would just go talk to people. I, I was, I was always nervous and shy and afraid to speak up, but you know, you, you I remember just one day thinking about it and being like, what do I have to lose? What's the worst thing? If I wrote Greg Stump, my ski movie hero, if I wrote him a letter, what's the worst thing he could do? He could A, not respond or B, just say, go away, stupid kid. I'm like, I can deal with those. Let's let's go for it. Let's try. <laughs> so, I, so I wrote off this letter saying, hey, I'm a huge fan of of your movies and and think it's amazing and if you ever come to mount washington on vancouver island which is a cool place we get lots of snow i i would love to show you around and maybe if you're looking for a skier i'd i'd it'd be pretty cool to be in one of your movies and i sent that off and then i actually forgot about it and because it, this was before email and all these things so uh but three months later i i, I got an, a letter in the mail and as i saw it was from greg stump and i was like oh man so i crack it open and he said hey thanks for writing um you know it's super cool that you're you're so passionate about skiing and i've i'm pretty happy with my skiers you know schmidt plake and hatrip and um but you know if we're ever looking for someone new we'll keep you in mind and and to me that was a no that was like everything i i thought that was the coolest thing and it, it kind of taught me a lesson because as a shy kid, I, I was often afraid to reach out or put myself out there. And then so that helped me when I moved to Whistler because I said, well, what, I, what do I have to lose? Let, like, you know, I remember before I did my first mogul competition, I saw two what appeared to be very accomplished mogul skiers under the chair. And I, I, they were like the best skiers I'd ever seen with, with my own eyes in my life. And I got off at the top of the chair and I went and I hid in the trees. And when I saw them come off the top of the chair and come start working their way down, I popped out of the trees and then all of a sudden came in behind them and then like pulled up beside them on the run and just started talking to them. And they're like, oh, hey, uh, do you want to come ski with us? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it ended up being Lane Barrett and B. Thomas, who were both national team members for Canada. And they ended up being like the nicest people I'd ever met and the best skiers. And, and we became friends from that day. And that kind of steered everything for those first few years. That's so cool. I love that story. Has that, has that happened to you when, you, when you've been out skiing, where perhaps 
people maybe recognize you or don't recognize you and they kind of ski up to you and hey can we go for a bit of a ski I mean how do you how do you deal with that especially if they don't know who you are and they just kind of tag along and you know I guess you probably have a certain level of responsibility but what happens when, when somebody skis up to you and say hey how's it going well one thing that I that I make an effort on is is to always give people the time of day always be nice always uh, be friendly because I remember how you know how much of a big deal that was when I was a kid and and that those people took the time to 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 say hello and be friendly and all that so I I take that I take that pretty seriously and then um yeah. And sometimes we end up, we'll do a run or two together and, and there's probably been some rare circumstances along the way where, where those people have become friends. And, uh, you know, we, you mentioned Sam Tierney who wrote me a letter. Uh, it was more of a climate change thing than a ski change ski thing. But, um, but now Sam's, Sam's a friend and him and his, him and his family, uh, you know, I can call on any given day and we get together every, every couple of months and, and have a catch up and, and Sam's doing incredible things. And, and, you know, it's, if you can inspire people to bring the best out of themselves, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of cool what, what people can accomplish. <laughs> that's really, really cool. I like that. And, you know, I guess, I guess that's part of, um, you know, there's, there's two sides of that coin, isn't it? That when you, um, as an individual, perhaps who um, sees a skier or uh, you know, a person of your stature out on the slopes, it's kind of uh, your you and their them, but as they ski up to you, they're having to fight down their own barriers, kind of like they don't know, you know, is is Mike going to yell at me, kind of like, oh, get away from me, all that sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, is it, 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 there's two sides of that coin, and it's lovely to see that, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, you're obviously aware of that, and you, you appreciate it when people come up to you. Hopefully now after this podcast, you won't be inundated with tons and tons of people. You won't be able to ski anywhere, but uh, I'm sure people still go up and say hello. <laughs> um yeah yeah i mean it's 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 an honor too and i mean one one of the the nice things too is is it is fun to be recognized and and have people say nice things to you though you you know you you affected my life in this positive way or whatever um and, and the nice thing about skiing as well is that we're you know there's no there's no um free skiers that are mainstream celebrities i mean you don't get it's not it never becomes annoying we'll say that i i, <laughs> I feel for big stars that get recognized literally everywhere but um but it's 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 nice yeah <laughs> that's quite cool the um when you do go skiing I'm, I'm curious to find out as well when you go skiing what goes through your mind i mean we'd obviously talk about the, the physical abilities and and you know you're obviously at, at, a, at a level where you perhaps don't necessarily need to think perhaps about, about skiing especially if you're out cruising around but what do you think about do you have music that runs through your head are you just kind of obviously enjoying things or what goes through your head oh it could be a whole bunch of things um the, the, i mean there's 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 obvious things sometimes i'm just zoned out i'm in the moment sometimes i'm listening to music sometimes i'm listening to a podcast i tend not if i'm going skiing in the backcountry i don't listen to music or podcasts i i find that having your your senses fully available is is important and and i also just like the solitude like i said listening to the birds the wind the all these things that's there there's a there's a it can be therapeutic for me just to be out there in that way. Um, 
but I think that the thing that may be the most surprising to you is that when I'm skiing around and, and skiing aggressively where I'm like out to ski for the day, I think a lot about technique. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Still. And, and one of the things I love about skiing is, is that there is a lifetime of learning there. I mean, you can never be a full master in my opinion. You, there's always somewhere to get better, always something to do more. And, and literally two days ago, the last day I skied, I remember the last run I was skiing. I was really working up, working on, I was doing fast GS turns and I, I was really working on squaring my shoulders. And I was consciously thinking about that. I'm like, no, square up more, square up more. Don't cross the hand. Like <laughs> it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I, that's kind of been one of for the last two or three seasons since the Solomon stance ski came out, um, which I thought I was going to hate. I love that ski. It is so powerful and fun on, especially in, in harder snow conditions, I get on that thing and I feel like I'm in a race car and I'm trying to go fast and I'm just trying to be, you know, I'm trying to be uh Ted Liggety out there. I, I I'm trying to like really rail those turns as hard as I can. And, um, and, you know, through some self-analysis and, and skiing around with my buddy, Stan Ray, I determined that I was a bit, I rotate a little bit on my longer turns in my mm -hmm. shoulders. And I didn't realize that until like two, three years ago. And so that's something I've been working on and, and that's fun. That's fun to, you know, when you, when you feel like it all links up. So lifetime of learning and never, never stops. And I'm going to keep learning as long as I can. <laughs> I say, is that there's um there's a movie about this, isn't it? But the, the art of the turn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that was like, that was inspired by this sort of my new thing of trying to, you know, like get on those skis and just, I, I was loving it. I just started doing it all the time. And then through that, that's when Stan was like, Oh, you got to do this a little more, this a little more. And now I even watched a couple of the clips in that piece. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that was, that was good. That shoulder's leaning in a little too much or whatever. So it's funny. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So speaking of skis, obviously one of the things that's I guess uh, fascinating and you know um, wanted to pick your brains about a little bit was obviously the development of the 1080. I mean this being the we're, we're still within I guess the 75th anniversary of Salomon, but the the, the 1080 development uh, it's such a fascinating story and um, you know reflecting back on it we had the chance to speak just before before we hit the record button and you're saying but uh, uh, time gives a bit of perspective on that but. I was wondering if you could talk us through kind of your how you how you create your proposal for the 1080, and and you know you made your uh, video about air carving, um, and then you reached out to various brands, but try to put that in the context of the time period back then versus now, where we have the internet and all that sort of stuff. I wonder if you could walk us through that. Yeah, I'll try. I'll try to be brief. Um, you know, the 1080 was born from. Um, uh, at the time, I was the mogul coach for the Canadian uh, development national team. And, um, you know, it, it was it was a time in skiing where skiing was viewed as becoming stagnant as an as an old person sport, as a boring sport. The, the industry at the time was very focused on carving, um, um, you know, parabolic skis with, with big side cut profiles had just sort of hit the hit the market and were a bit of a thing and 
Um, you know, we were freestyle skiers as a mogul coach, but that side of the sport was starting to die as well. The culprit was snowboarding. Snowboarding mm-hmm. had had come into the scene in the 90s and and all the energy was there. All that's all young people wanted to do or talk about or whatever. And skiing was was falling behind. So my friends and I, these well, the athletes that I was coaching, we were watching this happening and and saying like that energy is amazing, but why can't you do that stuff on skis? There's got to be a way. So we would just try and go out on our days off and figure out how to do these tricks. At the, around the same time, my my sponsor at the time, which was the ski brand Nizel, came to me and said, hey, we just want to let you know we're having a big budget cut this year. Your contract won't be renewed at the end of the year. And I went, oh, okay, well, that's tough. I need to figure something else out. And so while we're working on these new tricks and and I know my ski sponsors dumping me, um, I had a meeting with a friend of mine, Steve Faring, who is the mogul coach for the Japanese uh, mogul team. And he said, you know, I think the ski industry is ready for some new energy. And why don't you guys come up with a design for a ski that can do the stuff that you guys are starting to do? It's super cool. And I was like, yeah, well, yeah, let's, let's do it. So I drew up a proposal. Um, I think I just had a computer at that point. It was, this is 96, 97 um, and, and made about a 20 page proposal <clears throat> sort of outlining what was, you know, what, why we thought the idea would work to make a twin tip ski. And then we presented sort of a team of athletes that could promote it and all this. And then um, Steve took the proposal and shopped it around to the ski industry. So we went to the top nine brands at the, of the time and pretty much all of them said, no, like it's not going to work. You guys don't know what you're talking about. And the only two at the end that were sort of interested were, were Solomon and Rosignol. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rosignol offered us uh, contracts to be sponsored skiers, but they weren't willing to make the ski we wanted to make. And they said, well, we've got this thing. It's kind of like that. You guys can use this. And we just said that they're missing the point. It's not going to work. So we were ready to give up because Solomon was really stalling on us. And then finally, um, they decided that that they someone over there saw some merit in it and they they decided to start talking to us and you know long story short three months later we had the first solomon 1080 prototype and and we were signed on to develop this program and this ski and uh the rest is history that's fascinating i mean i the i uh I, I find it fascinating overall you know having had the opportunity myself to obviously to work in the snow sport industry and have a you know an awareness of how long some of these the timelines for some of these things, you know, using just kind of I guess a, a bit of a, a you know back of a napkin. It's kind of like so it's like November ninety seven. I guess they, Salomon said yes in, in principle, and then the first week of February you had the prototype. And it's like the timelines for that are absolutely nuts to have something like that made. I mean the molds, the layups, and all that sort of stuff. And so um, was it? There was uh, six skis made in the first first set for you guys is that is that right for you guys to actually go yeah something along those lines yeah yeah the first proto the first real prototype batch but there's like a fine there's a funny little step in the middle there and mm-hmm. and since people listening to this are probably kind of in the know and know some of this story i'll add mm-hmm. a little piece 
So when we first did the deal with Solomon and in November 97, um, they said, you know, they put us in contact with the ski design team right away. Cause they were like, okay, we got to talk to you guys about this. I wasn't willing to give up the, the sketches that I'd made for the ski until mm -hmm. we had a signed contract. Mm -hmm. So they're like, so like, can you give us your sketches? And I'm like, no, we need to sign contract first. Mm. And, uh, and then he said, oh, okay, well, we, we're going to move ahead. Cause we think we know what you guys want. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. Right on. So they gave us the ax cleaver. I don't know if you remember the ax cleaver, the ax cleaver. It was an extreme parabolic ski, like crazy yes, yes. side cut. And it was only, I think a 140, mm. super, super short. And they're like, you want this with a turned up tail? And we got, we tried it and we're like, <laughs> oh my God, these guys don't have a clue what we want. There's no clue. So anyway, it was, uh, it sounds like it all just like the synapses con connected right away, but it wasn't like that. And it wasn't until, um, until we got that contract signed, we, we passed along, uh, some of the design specs and, um, and, and so in reality, by the time that contract was signed, which was early January, uh, it was only one month from them getting the proper specs to the ski, us having the proto. So that was a 30 day process in the end. That's nuts. That's yeah. really nuts. Had you done much work prior to that? Like, had you gone to, you know, you know, the wood shop and actually made kind of, obviously you had some sketches, but had you made kind of your own mock-up from prototyping like that? It was all sketches. No, no. And, and, and um, it's funny because people, a lot of people say to me, like, why didn't you just make your own company and start doing this yourself? But keep in mind, I was, I was 27 years old and all I wanted to do was ski. I, I still loved skiing so much. And I, I was looking for a way to fund my continuation of skiing and, and the, the company and business motivations were, were way in the backseat for me. So I wanted someone else to do all the business side and just pay me and us to, to get out there and, and be the front men for this thing. And, um, and and yeah, so mission accomplished because that's exactly what happened. That's that's amazing. Um, from a, from a I don't know a holistic point of view, I don't know if it's the right terminology, but um, obviously you had a passion for snow sports. Obviously you wanted to you know get the product that was was uh, suitable for for you, the, the the work that you and the team were doing. But why did you feel it was your responsibility to develop this product? I mean, because they're obviously with nine nine rejections, or you know, obviously rejections along the way. Why did why did you feel it was down to 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 you to continue with this project? Hey there, and thanks for listening to part one of our conversation. Make sure you like and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider so you don't miss part two, which is coming out later on this week. Thank you.